The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Reexamining S1PR Modulation from All Angles in Relapsing Multiple Sclerosis, Impact on Physical and Cognitive Outcomes, and Practical Considerations of Long-Term Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash R-E-K 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to re-examining S1PR modulation from all angles and relapsing multiple sclerosis, impact on physical and cognitive outcomes, and practical considerations of long-term therapy. I'm Bruce Cree, and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Heidi Creighton. And, all right. I'm going to let Heidi do the first part of the presentation, uh, which is going to be examining the mechanism of action of S1PR modulators in the treatment of MS and exploring their potential as first-line therapies. Dr. Creighton is the medical director of the Multiple Sclerosis Center of Greater Washington, all the way from Vienna, Virginia. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. So Bruce, for the first time and probably only time ever, will be at a little bit of a disadvantage compared to me because he's three hours behind in time. So uh, it's nice to have this in my backyard. It's nice to see everybody so early in the morning. Thanks for being here, and thank you to Peerview. So we're here this morning to talk about S1P receptor modulators um, and exploring mechanism of action, where to place them, how to use them, what they're all about. Uh, when I was in medical school and in physiology and biochemistry, I don't recall really learning a lot about S1P receptors. Um, I think we're all kind of expanding our, our uh, knowledge biochemically and immunologically. But the S1P receptor system is something we've been talking about now for at least the past 10 years or so, 10 to 12 years. And S1P is a phospholipid that's released by platelets and uh, mast cells, as well as other cells. It stimulates five G-protein-coupled receptors that are located in endothelial cells and cardiac myocytes. And they're expressed in a variety of tissues. And that interaction is responsible for various positive effects that we're looking for, as well as some of the overlay side effects that we see with use of this, of this class of, of molecule. Different receptors induce a variety of different biological responses. There are five S1P receptors, um, and each of them kind of results, that coupling uh, results in various uh, different responses. Proliferation, angiogenesis, uh, migration, cytoskeletal organization, uh, chemotaxis, trafficking, mitogenesis. So this is just kind of an overlay of all five of these molecules. And again, we, uh, I think, have learned more and more over the past 12 years about some of the individual actions of, of these receptors and interaction with these with non-selective, in a non-selective manner. Um, we have interaction with all of these except S1P2. S1P1 um, is responsible for lymphocyte retention also with some impact on, on uh, heart rate. S1P3 is responsible and has interaction and interplay with cardiac conduction. And five is on um, uh, oligodendrocytes, plays a role with oligodendrocyte survival, migration, differentiation, remyelination. Um, it is expressed uh, in the CNS. 
So one in five uh, become a little bit more uh, selective in terms of, of output and, and outcomes that we're looking for with treatment of multiple sclerosis. And I always think that it's, it's important that patients understand a little bit about the mechanism of action of the products that they're on. Um, and this is a super easy one for a little five-second sound bite with patients. I just say ultimately it's about putting these misbehaving cells in timeout. Most young people who have children understand that analogy. Um, this S1P receptor is on um, the surface of lymphocytes, lymphocytes that are going into secondary lymphoid organs. organs. Um, they're activated. They then... Uh, leave, exit lymph nodes, go out into circulation, and wreak havoc. And initially, S1P receptors, uh, receptor modulators are agonists, but they are functionally antagonistic. They bind to S1P receptors uh, on the lymphocytes, which results in internalization of that S1P receptor. And that S1P receptor is required on the surface in order for the lymphocyte to migrate out of the lymph node. So the result is sequestration of these lymphocytes. So we have four S1P receptor modulators on the market currently. Uh, Fingolimod was the very first one, came out in 2010. It was the first oral therapy and the first S1P receptor modulator. That's when we started having this discussion about clinical aspects of S1P receptor modulation. Uh, Saponamod came out in 2019. Azanamod entered the marketplace in 2020, and we have a new entry to the marketplace in 2021 with Planesimod. And this is looking at specificity of interaction with the various S1P receptor uh, receptors. And you can see that um, we have kind of a more broad sweeping with Fingolimod, and then we have more uh, selective with some of our newer um, entries into the marketplace, more selective for S1P1 and S1P5. So this is a, just a nice little uh, overview of some of the functions of these subtypes of S1P receptors and the role that they play. And I think it's important, again, understanding the role that they play helps understand some of the side effect profile and some of the things we're trying to mitigate against um, with becoming more and more selective in our choice of interaction with S1P receptors. Um, I think it is important to, under, to understand this because then we, we have an understanding of why we want to become a little bit more selective and why we, we, we don't want necessarily a broad sweeping um, overlay. And this is just to kind of go through some of the, the adverse uh, events that have been associated with Fingolimod because of this off-target um, kind of broad sweeping effect. In terms of cardiac, um, it is contraindicated for people who have had recent MI, unstable angina, uh, stroke TIA, um, Mobitz type 2, second or third degree AV blocks, sinus without a pacer. Uh, hypertension can occur mostly because of interaction with the S1P2 and at three receptors. Um, at the S1P3 receptor may be the one that's actually responsible for second degree uh, heart block. In terms of... Uh, uh, the eyes, macular edema, we certainly are familiar with as something that needs to be watched and monitored for. Um, and that's probably because of interaction with S1P1 and S1P2. So even with, with the selective S1P receptor modulators, it's something for us to be aware of. Um, it's not something that is necessarily required to um, be looking at prior to initiation of therapy, but it's something for us to be aware of. 
in terms of pulmonary system, uh, perhaps decrease uh, uh, FEV1 um, can occur because of S1P receptor uh, interaction, uh, mostly via S1P2 and S1P3. And as you saw in one of the previous slides, there's very, very little S1P2 um, interaction with these, uh, with our, our products, but something to be aware of. So this is kind of a, a comparison of their profiles in terms of half-life. Um, Panesimod uh, is, is the, the most rapidly eliminated. And we have Fingolimod, which is, um, takes the longest amount of time. But there's variations uh, between all four of these, these products. In terms of time to recovery of lymphocyte counts, because we know we're going to see Dr. Kree's, in Dr. Kree's presentation, um, information about lymphocyte sequestration and, and ultimately having a low lymphocyte count. Um, but the recovery time is sometimes something that we're really concerned about and we want to be able to have control over. So that's something that varies as well in terms of um, cessation of, of dosing and when we see return recovery to, to normal counts. And then pretreatment assessments. I think this is every, everybody's pretty familiar with this. We always want our baseline labs. Um, there's some upfront up testing that is really required for um, use of fingolimod, and that becomes a little bit more um, um, individualized with some of the other products. Vaccination status. Um, keep in mind, you know, we always ask if people have had uh, chickenpox. If not, they should be vaccinated. And sometimes our assays, you know, the LabCorp assay, uh, is sometimes not very sensitive to picking up those titers after somebody has been vaccinated. So um, just to be mindful of that. We have genotyping that is required for saponamod. Um, so again, requirements vary a little bit. Overall, they're pretty much the same, but a little bit different. First dose monitoring is, is required for use of fingolimod. Um, we don't really have that with the others. Um, and in terms of titration, um, Fingolimod really mitigates the change in heart rate with that first dose observation. The others do it with a titration. So we know that S1P receptor modulators um, certainly have increased efficacy. There's a big step up from what we refer to as platform therapy, um, interferon, glutamer, and we have increased efficacy in terms of, um, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to steal Dr. Kree's thunder. You'll see the, the data. But in terms of the hoops that all of our products need to jump through to show efficacy, um, it's an immunomodulator. Uh, it's once a day oral dosing, which is nice for patients, especially for me, um, more uh, younger and flakier patients. Uh, we have you know, various incarnations and generations. Uh, first line, second line, third line, it's... This is a product that I, from the time that it came to market, I've used as a first-line drug. Um, it's, it's a very nice way to introduce MS to somebody who's newly diagnosed, who's young, in my opinion. Um, it makes them feel normal to be able to take a pill like other people. So switching from an injectable product to an S1P receptor modulator, you know, certainly has been shown to have results in a reduction in lesion number. We have MRI metrics that are, are, are met. Annualized relapse rates are reduced. Uh, 
lower impact of those relapses on activities of daily living, smaller reduction in brain volume, and we've been talking a lot more about that in the past decade, significantly improved quality of life, patient-reported outcomes, um, and lower adverse event rate. And I, when I started using S1P receptor modulators and switching people over, I realized that there had been a, really a lot of um, you know, negative symptoms, depression, fatigue, that I thought was actually part of MS, and I didn't really realize that it was overflow from use of, of interferons, for instance. Um, so it wasn't so much that the quality of life changed because I was doing something, I was really kind of taking away that wet blanket effect. So that's just a little quick brief uh, S1P receptor 101, and now I'll turn it back over to Dr. Cree to dive into the data. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Heidi, for that excellent uh, introduction to the basic biology of the S1P receptor modulators. I'm going to go uh, to uh, review some of the clinical trial data and biomarker studies that we have. <clears throat> so, of course, Fingolimod is the first uh, S1P receptor modulator that came to market. Uh, the data from this product or on this product is based on three pivotal trials three phase three studies, the Freedoms 1 and Freedoms 2 trial, which were both placebo-controlled in the TRANSFORM study, which was a shorter-duration active comparator study uh, comparing fingolimod to once-weekly interferon beta-1a. All three trials met their primary endpoint, which was to show an impact on the annualized relapse rate. They all reduced the annualized relapse rate by around 50%. There was also statistically significant effects on new or enlarging T2 lesions, on GAD-enhancing lesions, and in terms of confirmed disability progression, this was shown to be statistically significant only in one of the three trials, the Freedoms 1 trial. Uzanimod also had two pivotal trials, two phase three studies, both using an active comparator of interferon beta-1a. Uh, these were quite large studies. Two different doses of the drug were examined, but in clinical practice, we really are only using the uh, one milligram dose. Um, both studies showed statistically significant effects in terms of the annualized relapse rate uh, and effects on new or enlarging lesions and in GAD-enhancing lesions, but there was no real difference between the treatment with Ozanimod and interferon beta-1a with respect to three-month confirmed disability progression. These trials have gone into open-label extension studies, just as the Ingolimod trials have. Finesimod had a three-phase, uh, excuse me, had a, a phase three study in uh, relapsing MS. This was an active comparator study with teraflunamide and showed a reduction in terms of the annualized relapse rate relative to teraflunamide, also an impact in combined unique lesions, that's new T2 lesions or enlarging T2 lesions or GAD-enhancing lesions. And then I'll go into a little bit more detail in a moment about the effect that this drug potentially has in MS-related fatigue. Saponamod is interesting because out of these four products, it's the one that has been investigated in secondary progressive multiple sclerosis whereas the other three have been investigated in relapsing MS. This was a large study. These patients had much more advanced MS with an EDSS score which was considerably higher, 3 to 6.5, and the median EDSS score was 6, so a very different type of patient than the ones in the other trials where the median EDSS score was about 2. 
And in this trial, there was a statistically significant effect as compared to placebo. Primary endpoint was on confirmed disability progression. And the drug hit the confirmed disability progression endpoint with a 21% reduction in three-month CDP and a 24% reduction in six-month CDP, as well as the expected effects in terms of relapses, GAD-enhancing lesions, and new T2 lesions. So all of these studies <clears throat> have led to open-label extension studies. And of course, in the open-label extension, there isn't a, a control group per se. You can compare the people who were originally on uh, placebo or an active comparator and who made the switch. So you can certainly look at that. Uh, but of course, the main goal of these open-label studies is to evaluate whether there is sustained therapeutic benefit and whether the safety profile of the products that was investigated and demonstrated in the phase three studies is maintained over the long term. And I'm pleased to say that with all four of these products, the long-term studies really have not shown any surprises with respect to uh, safety concerns. They've all had a very uh, consistent safety profile that goes along with the phase three data. Um, and there has been a sustained benefit for all of these treatments in terms of their impact uh, with respect to uh, new lesion formation and the annualized relapse rate. And for all four drugs, the event of disability progression that's confirmed occurred infrequently. All right, so you know when we think about MS, we've focused so much on in terms of relapses, on disability worsening, on focal MRI activity. And of course, these three measures together can be aggregated in what we look at in terms of no evidence of disease activity, or, or NIDA-3. And that's a, an interesting measure that gives us a sort of gestalt of the overall therapeutic benefit of these products, and they, they all have a striking effect in terms of meeting this outcome. But of course, this is just the tip of the MS iceberg, and uh, we do know that there are many other features of MS, both clinical and radiographic and biomarker, that are not completely addressed by looking at relapses, disability progression, and focal MRI disease activity. Cognitive impairment is extremely important in multiple sclerosis, uh, but is not adequately addressed by the EDSS. And so you have to actually look a little bit further to find an effect in terms of cognitive outcomes in MS. But cognitive impairment is a major source of MS-related disability. Fatigue is also a major source of disability and, again, is not adequately evaluated using the EDSS. So uh, if you have an effect on fatigue, that would be, a, I think, an important clinical outcome. And then, of course, the brain and spinal cord are under attack. And as a consequence of MS, we all know that there is loss of brain tissue, loss of spinal cord tissue, uh, so-called brain and spinal cord atrophy. And these uh, processes, once we see them, reflect end-organ tissue injury, which is irreversible. <clears throat> you cannot grow a new spinal cord. You cannot grow a new brain, at least not yet. So when you see that atrophy has occurred, that is an irreversible marker of end-organ tissue injury. And this should be one of the things that we are focused on preventing, if at all possible. And then there are, of course, are the lesions that we can't see by conventional imaging. Uh, more recent work using high-field magnets and, of course, histopathology has revealed a wide variety of demyelinating lesions present in the cortical gray matter and deep, white, deep gray matter structures that simply cannot be visualized by standard imaging technology. And we think that these areas of cortical demyelination are critical uh, for uh, cognitive functioning. 
And uh, it, I think we have to develop better and better technology to identify these areas uh, before they have occurred and to develop treatments that influence their outcomes. And then when we're thinking about these processes, of course, there are uh, markers that we are now in the process of developing. Uh, and I'll uh, share some information with you on neurofilament light and GFAP, which can be measured in the serum of patients. Of course, these can be measured in the CSF. But advances in technology have allowed us to measure uh, these neuronal uh, biochemicals present in serum samples. And I think that is a very interesting area of ongoing research in multiple sclerosis. So now on to cognitive dysfunction in MS. Cognitive dysfunction is uh, a very common manifestation in multiple sclerosis. And we really need to be better informed regarding the role of cognitive problems in patients uh, with MS. We focus too much, I think, in terms of relapse prevention and disability. Uh, worsening is measured by the EDSS. And the National MS Society in 2018 came up with a guideline uh, recommending monitoring of MS by administration of neuropsychological testing to every patient at baseline, and then testing patients annually after that. Now, it's a lofty goal. Um, I'm not so sure that this is a practical goal, uh, because neuropsych testing takes anywhere between four and eight hours. And individual patients, as they come in who are newly diagnosed, uh, might be completely normal cognitively. So I'm, I'm not quite sure we can do this. Plus, usually neuropsychologists recommend testing, repeat testing every two to three years, not annually. Uh, and the access to neuropsychologists often is quite limited. We're fortunate at UCSF to have an embedded neuropsychologist in our practice who performs all the neuropsych testing for our patients. And it can be very, very helpful to have that ancillary type of testing. So if you have a neuropsychologist available, that's fantastic. Uh, but if you don't, you have to think about perhaps there are some other ways to assess cognitive dysfunction in multiple sclerosis. Things such as use of the SDMT that can be administered in routine clinical practice uh, takes only about a minute to perform uh, and can provide, I think, potentially a wealth of information about your patients, which is not adequately accessed uh, or accessed or uh, determined by the EDSS or other uh, uh, patient reports. So now only about half of the uh, MS clinics in the country uh, are assessing cognitive dysfunction in MS. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, neuropsych testing is not available everywhere. Uh, but we can screen our patients with the SDMT. And this is something, if you haven't done it yet, is actually quite easy to uh, learn how to do and does provide at least a rudimentary understanding about um, processing speed in multiple sclerosis. Now, several studies have looked at various medications and their effect on uh, cognitive function, in particular cognitive processing speed. Uh, those of you who've run clinical trials know about the PACEAT, which is the PACE Auditorial Serial Addition Test. Uh, it's a difficult test. Uh, patients uh, hate going through it. Uh, it's very challenging. Um, but nonetheless, it does provide us insight into the ability to attend and perform some basic mathematic operations with the distractor going on at the same time. And here's data on the impact on the PASAT scores comparing Fingolimod-treated patients over the first 24 months of the study, uh, followed by those who switched from placebo to Fingolimod after the 24 months and over the long term. And what you can see here is that the mean change from baseline and PASAT scores increased 
in those individuals who are on uh, fingolimod the entire time, uh, and in those individuals who were initially on placebo and switched to fingolimod, those scores also went up over time, although not quite catching up to the individuals who had been on fingolimod treatment from baseline. The EXPAND study also looked at a measure of cognitive uh, function using uh, the uh, SDMT, which is the symbol digit modality test, uh, an, an alternate test that is not as draining as the PASAT is, and anxiety-provoking. And here you can see the Kaplan-Meier curves for confirmed cognitive worsening, uh, comparing the group, which is in blue, and continuous uh, saponamod to those who were initially uh, treated with placebo and then switched over to saponamod. Now, this particular trial uh, had a variable duration of time on placebo, Individuals who, after 12 months of treatment, uh, met confirmed disability worsening at six months were allowed to roll over into active treatment, and so there was a variable amount of placebo exposure anywhere between 12 and 36 months with the median time on placebo of about 18 months. And as you can see here, those who switched over from placebo to saponamod uh, had a different Kaplan-Meier curve compared to those on continuous saponamod indicating that treatment with continuous saponamod was superior to placebo over the long term in terms of delaying the time to six-month confirmed cognitive worsening and time to reach the 25th percentile. That's a 60% difference. Now, fatigue is common in multiple sclerosis. We don't have good ways of measuring it, but it is a major cause of disability. And between ambulatory impairment cognitive dysfunction and fatigue, these are the three main drivers of loss of vocation in multiple sclerosis. Uh, fatigue, of course, is an invisible symptom. It, it, it can manifest in many different ways. It can manifest as neuromuscular fatigue. It can be almost indistinguishable from uh, depression. Uh, it can be brought on by sleep disorders. It can be uh, a, a profound lassitude, just a general lack of energy. Uh, and it has got a tremendous burden in terms of reducing activity, productivity, and has a massive economic burden for patients living with MS. So uh, claims analysis of over 4,000 patients treated with DMTs for over five years showed that up to 46% had fatigue documented by ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes, sleep studies, and stimulant prescriptions. And so we keep giving patients who have fatigue stimulants, and I think that's okay for the type of fatigue that manifests as excessive daytime somnolence, but a stimulant like Adderall or methylphenidate or modafinil is simply not going to do anything for a patient who has no energy. You're just going to keep them awake without energy. You're not giving them the energy back. And of course, patients who have fatigue are more likely to have comorbid depression, anxiety, cardiovascular disease, and GI disorders. So uh, I think we, we really have to do a better job of characterizing fatigue and doing something about it therapeutically. So here's data from the Ponesimod clinical <clears throat> trial, which compared itself to teraflunamide. And you can see here a, a, a symptom domain of fatigue using the fatigue symptom and impact questionnaire for relapsing MS. Now, this is uh, a novel questionnaire that had been developed really for this clinical trial um, and shows you the change in fatigue scores from baseline all the way through to week 108. 
when a decrease in score is considered beneficial, an increase in score is doing worse. And you can see that by week 108, the uh, Pinesimod treatment group uh, had no change in baseline fatigue, whereas those on teraflunamide experienced worsening fatigue. And this was statistically significant at week 108. So it is possible that Pinesimod has a beneficial therapeutic effect on fatigue, although this information uh, comes from the clinical trial, it did not make it into the prescribing information for this particular product. Now, what about brain volumetrics and uh, end organ tissue injury? Well, uh, all of these clinical trials have used advanced quantitative imaging to look at brain volume, to look at deep gray matter volume, thalamic volumes, and cortical volume. And here's data from Fingolimod uh, looking at this pooled data from the phase three clinical trial program. And what you can see here is a, a significant effect of fingolimod on overall brain volume loss, on deep gray matter volume loss, and thalamic volume loss. Uh, the last box here of cortical gray matter showed no, no difference, but nonetheless, you get the idea that there is an impact of fingolimod on preserving uh, overall brain volume and gray matter structures over time. And I think this is very important. Uh, when you look at overall brain volume, the uh, degree of brain volume loss on fingolimod is normalized to the lower limit of normal uh, for those individuals who do not have that mass. And I think this is an important message telling us that you can preserve brain tissue by treatment with S1Q receptor modulation. Zanimod showed uh, similar effects. Here you can see an impact on uh, the brain volume change at 12 and 24 months with its two pivotal trials. Uh, first on whole brain, then cortical gray matter and thalamic volume. Uh, and you can see that there's a, a effect of both doses of uh, ozanamod, but only the one milligram dose is used in clinical practice. And all of these changes were compared to the active comparator interferon beta-1a once weekly. And now in terms of panesimod compared to teraflunamide, there was also an effect on overall brain volume loss that reached statistical significance by week 108. And then uh, for saponamod, there was an effect uh, in reducing both cortical gray matter and thalamic volume loss. Uh, and this was shown in the overall treatment population uh, and sub-analyses were also performed in those with active MS, uh, meaning those individuals who came into the study and had a relapse in the two years prior or a GAD-enhancing lesion at baseline. And these effects were seen in active uh, in the active MS subgroup as well. So now, what about uh, biomarkers? Well, neurofilament light is a biomarker that has received a lot of interest in MS. The new Samoa assays uh, are highly sensitive and are capable of picking up neurofilament light concentrations at the picogram amount uh, from serum samples. And uh, serum neurofilament light uh, was looked at as a biomarker in the Fingolimod clinical trials. Uh, first, uh, in box A at the top is the, or the Freedoms studies. And you can see that these are, of course, the placebo-controlled trials. And you can see the decline in serum neurofilament light with active treatment in the red bar or red line uh, compared to the blue line of placebo. And a reduction in serum neurofilament light is implied to mean a reduction in neuronal injury because serum neurofilament light is released from neurons. Uh, it is a 
uh, it's present in the axons of neurons, and as a consequence of tissue injury, it's released, winds up in the blood, and so a reduction in serum neurofilament light is considered to be a good thing and a marker of decreased ongoing tissue injury. And in the panel below, you can see a comparison here of uh, fingolimod to interferon beta-1a, and once again, you see normalization of serum neurofilament light back to the healthy control level uh, with fingolimod treatment relative to treatment with interferon beta-1a. Now, what about serum GFAP? Well, serum G GFAP is a marker for astroglial injury. Uh, GFAP is uh, present in astroglial cells. And in the Ozanamod clinical trials, uh, uh, two different doses of Ozanamod were compared to interferon uh, beta-1a. And you can see that in red, the interferon beta-1a uh, data clusters together. Uh, and the Ozanamod data clusters together at both the 0.5 and 1 milligram dose. Uh, on uh, the y-axis is the impact in terms of the adjusted annualized relapse rate on top, and on the x-axis is the concentration of serum GFAP. And so what your eye can see immediately is that treatment with Ozanamod not only reduces the annualized relapse rate, but also reduces serum GFAP, and this can cleanly distinguish that group treated with Ozanamod versus the group on interferon beta-1a. We see similar effects in the next box in terms of contrast-enhancing lesions and new or enlarging T2 lesions, and there is hope that this biomarker can give us an insight into ongoing MS disease activity without the need for frequent imaging. So it is possible, conceivable, that we could use these, these uh, biomarkers as proxies for tissue injury, uh, potentially um, allowing us to perform serial assessments, perhaps, for example, in a phase two type of study where we want to uh, get a sense of uh, the rapidity of impact of a particular treatment and whether it can be measured by serial blood samples, say once a month or once every other month over a course of a six or one year, six month or one year period. And that might be something that could be useful uh, since it's impractical to do monthly MRI scans in the same patients. Just an idea about how these things could be used. Now, <clears throat> when we try to put all of this together, um, one of the interesting studies that I, I just want to show you, now this is a very complicated slide, but I'm going to walk you very briefly through it. What this slide uh, does use, uh, it takes a supervised machine learning approach integrating information about serum neurofilament light uh, and brain volumetrics, looking at uh, lateral ventricular volume, gray matter volume, and, uh, and then ask the question, if we can integrate these things, can we develop a model for prediction of cognitive worsening in terms of SDMT scores? Mm -hmm. And the short answer is, is, is yes. So um, when you integrate measures of uh, brain volumetrics with serum biomarkers of chronic tissue injury and ongoing tissue injury, you can come up with a model that is predictive for who's going to be at highest risk of cognitive worsening. So I think this is going to be uh, uh, the start of a new era of uh, investigation in MS, uh, where we really are, are taking the, the knowledge that we have about brain volumetrics um, serum uh, uh, fluid um, uh, biomarkers, 
and applying them to our understanding of long-term cognitive and other outcomes in multiple sclerosis. And now I'm going to uh, take a break from the podium and go uh, sit down here uh, with Heidi, and uh, we're going to now begin our practicum uh, case discussion, uh, bringing it into focus, individualizing management of relapsing MS to achieve optimized uh, patient care. So our patient is a 28-year-old uh, right-handed uh, Latin American woman who has a history of depression that's treated effectively with citalopram. She presents with a left occipital parietal headache. It's associated with pins and needles paresthesias on the scalp in the same distribution. The headache is pulsatile, associated with nausea and photophobia, but is without aura and no phonophobia. She's diagnosed with migraine, and she started on amitriptyline, riboflavin, and sumatriptan. Uh, the patient notes that amitriptyline is ineffective at preventing the migraines from occurring, but sumatriptan or sleep can abort her headaches. She also describes muscle twitching around her left eye, she has intermittent tingling paresthesias in her feet, and she's had urinary urgency, which is new for her, for the last month. And on exam, she's got orbicularis oculi uh, myopimia. She's got diminished vibratory sensation in her toes. Uh, and uh, her EDSS score is 2, with the following uh, functional scale scores. Sensories 1, brainstem 2, for the ocular myopimia that the patient's aware of and is bothersome to her and her bowel and bladder score is one. So she ultimately undergoes a, a brain MRI, which shows multiple ovoid T2 hyperintensities throughout uh, the supertentorial white matter, some of which are periventricular. She's got a left uh, cere cerebellar peduncular lesion as well. And there are three contrast-enhancing lesions on the scan, one of which is ring-enhancing. Cervical MRI is normal, but her thoracic MRI discloses an area of abnormal signal change from T3 to T6, which is ill-defined. So she's got a longitudinally extensive T2 lesion in the thoracic cord. She goes on to have CSF, and in the CSF, she's got six white blood cells, normal protein and glucose. The IgG index is elevated at 1.4, and she's got multiple oligoclonal bands present in the spinal fluid that are not present in the corresponding serum sample. Additional laboratory tests show a positive ANA with a 1 to 40 pattern. The vitamin D is low at 14. JCV uh, is seropositive with an index of 1.6, and all of the other studies are either negative or normal. And so she's diagnosed with MS, uh, migraine without aura, which is not intractable and without status migranosis, and vitamin D deficiency. Now, uh, I practice in San Francisco, and our CatchNet area is quite uh, broad. We serve a very large area of Northern California, all the way up to the border of Oregon and Crescent City, which is about nine hours away from San Francisco. And this patient lived in a remote uh, rural area, and her nearest infusion center is about a five-hour drive away. She's also needle-phobic. So uh, with all this information, Heidi, uh, what, what do you think? we should do in terms of treatment. I've put uh, up here, I think I got pretty much all of the MS therapies on here that we typically uh, would think about. 
what would you do therapeutically for this patient? What are your considerations? Given the fact that she's she's Hispanic, uh, I, we have data that that shows that we have ethnic differences in in autoimmune disease and MS presentation. So initially, in my mind, that kind of puts her in a category of somebody to be a little bit more concerned about. The fact that she has brainstem and spinal cord involvement um, is certainly going to shorten her path to disability. So she needs high-efficacy therapy. Uh, it's very unfortunate that she lives so far from an infusion center because um, an infused monoclonal antibody would certainly be my, my, my go-to for her to get her to a better baseline and, and protect her CNS. Given that she is so far away, um, and that's really not an option, I probably w actually would offer her an S1P receptor modulator. Yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, I think the, the interferons and in GA, of course, are self-injected, and the patient's already told us she's needle-phobic, so probably... And less effective than what she yeah, needs. And, and probably less effective, too. And, and, and she's 28, right? So a woman of, of childbearing age, I typically are not going to... I'm, I, in my personal practice, just my opinion, I'm not going to reach for terafunamide in those patients. Me neither, right? yeah. um, certainly, if, I think ethumerate could be considered, right? Uh, you know, um, if she's reliable. If she's reliable, exactly. So you have to be willing to take a medication twice a day or, or even two pills twice a day, right? Right, right. So uh, uh, S1P modulators, I, I think, as you said, make a lot of sense. She's JCV seropositive. That always gives me pause before recommending natalizumab, although... Uh, we can do extended interval dosing now, and um, uh, you know, and that reduces the risk of, of development of PML. I think anti-CD20 is is uh, reasonable. What do you think about alemtuzumab? Is this a patient that you would uh, start an alemtuzumab? I think that that certainly is should be part of the conversation, with the exception that she is so far away from. Um, uh, lab services that I think the burden of monthly blood work for five years would be incredibly burdensome. So I don't think it's it's realistic. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are quite a few challenges with yeah. use of alemtuzumab in this particular case that would make it difficult. What, what about cladribine? Do you think about uh, cladribine? I mean, it's got the convenience of uh, an oral therapy. Um, you know, you have a few few pills for a few days in a row, you're good for a year, you do it again, and that's that? Personally, I, I wouldn't. Um, as first-line therapy for this inflammatory, acutely inflammatory patient, um, the fact that she's younger and of childbearing potential, um, that's actually where I do discuss cladribine with patients to be able to have finite treatment and have that treatment done, and then they can proceed with family planning. Um, but in this particular patient, I really, if I had my druthers, I would, I would helicopter into an infusion center. <laughs> All right. What about, what about mitoxantrone? What, what are your thoughts about that? Do you still use mitoxantrone? I don't. Use, I haven't used mitoxantrone in quite a while. And I think it's certainly, though. it's still available. Uh, I think it's, it's use and utilization is pretty rare in the U.S. Um, and we've certainly seen that the down, uh, the down, the downslide of, of choosing mitoxantrone with cardiac toxicity, and so that's that's certainly myelocytic that's leukemia. Hard, hard to go ahead yes. and throw that at a, a and infertility and infertility. For a young hard, woman. hard to do that. To yes, twenty-eight-year-old. Yes. Person. All right. So the the patient. So you're here an S1P receptor modulator meeting. Guess what? Patient starts an S1P receptor modulator. Right. Okay. 
What's the real world uh, uh, data on first line uh, S1P uh, treatment? Well, uh, generally speaking, when we look at um, patients who are started on highly effective frontline therapies, so-called heft therapies, they tend to do better uh, than our lower uh, uh, therapeutic efficacy treatments or light therapies. They tend to do better over the long term. Um, and so we have data from multiple sources of observational cohorts showing that high efficacy frontline treatment is uh, better in terms of long-term disability than our tried and true therapeutic escalation approach. Now, I think this is being used a lot in clinical practice, uh, but it hasn't come completely all the way into focus because we don't have yet randomized control trials. I think we eventually will, right? We have two trials which are ongoing right now uh, that are going to address this type of therapeutic paradigm approach, uh, and we'll have data coming out in the years to come from those randomized control trials. But a lot of us who see uh, many, many MS patients are already making the switch and going away from uh, a fix-on-fail approach mm -hmm. and using the higher efficacy therapies uh, which, in my opinion, include the S1P receptor modulators, but certainly the monoclonal antibodies as well uh, as, as frontline. And this is really, I think, being predicated by uh, first natalizumab in JCV seronegative patients and the ability to monitor for JCV seropositive conversion. And then uh, with the anti-CD20s as well, where the uh, uh, adverse event profile is generally quite favorable. Can I just add to that that Please. that uh, this data is even more robust for for his, uh, Hispanic, African American population, non-white population um, of of patients, and I think especially our our non non-white males um, that tend to have so much more uh, impending disability if not uh, attacked very aggressively early on. I think that that's that's really important for us to remember that we really absolutely we really cannot approach that group of patients with a an escalation stepwise approach. That's right. Yeah. Well, you're, you're doomed to failure. You're, yeah. Exactly. You're, you're generating therapeutic success based on failure. So. All right. So let's get, continue with our case. So so uh, you know just in general, I would say all DMTs are effective in treating relapsing MS. Some are more effective than others. And of course, when you're selecting a DMT, you should consider comorbidities, concomitant medications, patient-specific factors that may influence treatment adherence. So our patient starts an S1P receptor modulator. Her orbicularis oculi myotymia resolves. She's got ongoing urinary urgency frequency and develops nocturia. Uh, her PVR is only 10 cc's. She's tried and fails in oxybutynin, telteridine, before finally getting on mirabagron, and then has improvement. Um, her migraines are managed by a combination of verapamil, magnesium, riboflavin, sumatriptan. Still has about six migraines a month, um, but I can't get a CGRP for her due to insurance reasons. Uh, and then the COVID-19 pandemic started. So what about COVID-19 MS and S1P receptor modulators? Does MS confer greater vulnerability for outcomes with COVID-19? Does use of DMT affect vulnerability to COVID-19? And how do DMTs in general affect vaccine efficacy 
and in particular, does S1P receptor modulator affect uh, COVID-19 vaccine responses? So um, if you are a obese man with diabetes and cardiovascular comorbidity and pulmonary problems and hypertension uh, and progressive MS and you get COVID, you're probably not going to do so well. Right? These are the major risk factors, and I think we are all familiar with this. The higher the EDSS score, the worse the clinical outcomes. Uh, if you've been treated with corticosteroids recently, you tend to do worse as well. And interestingly, there may be an effect of, S, uh, of uh, CD20 monoclonal antibodies in terms of making outcomes a bit worse compared to uh, dimethylfumarate. But no treatment is worse than treatment, uh, so perhaps these things uh, do wash out a little bit. Uh, fingolimod reduces the immune response to vaccination. Uh, vaccination can be less effective for about two months after discontinuation of fingolimod, and of course one's not supposed to use live or attenuated vaccine during treatment. Um, there can be reductions in terms of vaccine efficacy, looking at uh, uh, keyhole uh, uh, limpet, uh, DTH, and influenza, uh, and uh, other S1P receptor agonists uh, also have uh, effects in terms of SARS-CoV-2 antibody. You can see here on the lower graph uh, the effect pre and post uh, vaccination of the various uh, therapeutics, the pre-vaccination in the blue dots, post-vaccination in the black dots. And you can see uh, for just about everything, there's a rise in the presence of CD4-positive uh, cells, but this response is quite attenuated with S1P receptor uh, modulators in general. And we see an impact in humoral immunity, uh, too, with reductions in antibody responses uh, as measured by the semi-quantitative uh, SARS-CoV-2 antibody test. So this patient gets vaccinated uh, three times. Uh, however, despite vaccination, she contracts COVID. She's admitted to her local hospital. She gets oxygen. Uh, she does recover, but has some lingering uh, dyspnea with exertion, and we, we check her for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, and she has no detectable antibodies by the, by the index. Index value is less than one. So we stop her, her S1P receptor modulator, and after two months, uh, we, we wait for her absolute lymphocyte count uh, to recover, and it comes back from 0 0.4 to 1, which is back into the normal range. And we revaccinate her, uh, give her two more doses, um, and then uh, her SARS-CoV-2 antibody two weeks after that second dose is now greater than uh, 2,500. Brain MRI is performed for safety, shows no newer active lesions. There's concern about a hypothetical rebound that might occur following S1P receptor discontinuation. And so she was monitored carefully for any signs of MS disease activity and her MRI uh, was stable, and her S1P receptor uh, modulator was restarted, and now she's doing okay. So these are some details from this case. I don't know, what's your experience, Heidi? Have you been taking patients off of treatment and then revaccinating and putting them back on, or do you just keep vaccinating with the hope that one day they're gonna uh, seroconvert? Uh, do you use, in your own practice, the SARS-CoV-2 antibody to assess for your MS patients on various DMTs? Yeah, I I actually do. Um, when the pandemic started, we really didn't have any information. Um, so I figured I should probably start gathering information to help guide me. So for the past 
18 months or so, we've been collecting uh, on every patient, every visit. I have a big spreadsheet of, of antibody status by, by drug. So I've collected quite a bit of data, and that really led me to, uh, you know, help kind of guide people through and navigate through the pandemic and vaccine. So initially, I was actually manipulating their S1P receptor product, um, holding it so that they could actually um, have a response. That actually created a lot of anxiety for patients to be off of their S1P receptor uh, product. So I stopped doing that and actually just across the board now for the past you know six months or so, I've just been giving all of my anti-CD20 patients and my S1P patients EvaShield and just saying no more boosters, no more vaccine, let's not waste the time, I'll just provide you with the antibodies. So that's how I've been managing those patients. It's just kind of been a learning process, I think, for all of us throughout this time of pandemic. Yeah, we're, we're using a lot of Evershell too, um, and we'll, we'll see, you know, uh, right now I've had patients get COVID despite treatment with Evershell, right? Like they just got Evershell and then they get COVID. And that's not supposed to happen. And I, I think it's, it's, it's teaching us that this virus is going to continue uh, to change. It's going to continue to mutate. And it is going to avoid even our most advanced uh, monoclonal antibodies that we currently have. I think it, you know, it does give us some protection against Omicron, which at the time was the big concern. And now you're right with, with constant uh, evolution of this virus. But I think the people have less severe cases or asymptomatic oftentimes. So just in summary, um, you know, consider early initiation of S1P receptor modulators as uh, frontline therapy or any really highly effective frontline treatment. Um, think about cognitive function in your patients and, and consider use of cognitive assessments such as the SDMT, which can be used for monitoring your patients in your practice. And, you know, consider the impact on cognitive outcomes when you're selecting your DMTs for your patients. Not all DMTs have shown effect on, on cognitive uh, preservation. All right. So uh, we have a question from the audience, and I'm going to take my glasses off so I can read it. Um, Since the blood-brain barrier, neurons, and all glial cells have various combinations of all the S1P receptors, is it not theoretically possible that an S1P agent that covers more of the S1P receptors may have some beneficial short- and long-term effects on inflammatory and degenerative MS. So I guess the idea here is that maybe uh, fingolimod, which hits S1P1, S1P3, S1P4, S1P5, would have an advantage over ozanimod and, and uh, saponimod and panesimod, whereas ozanimod and saponimod would have an advantage over panesimod because they hit S1P1 and S1P5, whereas panesimod is S1P1 specific. So uh, what, what do you think, Heidi? That, this, is, this is a perfect question for, for you. Do you think that, that hitting them all is better than hitting some? I, actually, I, I, I don't. I think that um, S1P5 is, is one of our probably more highly focused um, in the group. And I think that we really do have to try to balance side effect profile. And that broad sweep we've, we've seen really um, gives us an increased incidence of side effects that we have to manage. So I think over time we've, we, we've seen that for ourselves with experience. Yeah, no, for, for sure. I think, I think the development of the more selective S1P receptor modulators 
although they have not been compared in the head-to-head randomized controlled trial against Dengolimod, has clearly shown, nonetheless, cross-trial comparison caveats all in place, uh, that they have a, a cleaner side effect profile, and they still have excellent evidence of therapeutic benefit. So, you know, if you look at the impact on the annualized relapse rate, comparing uh, saponamod, for example, to Dengolimod, they're both reducing the annualized relapse rate by about 50%. Yeah. So to me, that, that seems very consistent with the overall therapeutic uh, beneficial effect that seems you know, entirely consistent for this class of therapy, but with uh, an improved side effect profile. I think that's uh, data really important. Yeah, the data, I think, there is, is really apparent. Here's another question in terms of um, consideration between selection of a frontline therapy. How do you choose between an S1P receptor modulator versus an anti-CD20? Or others. Or others. Um, really, uh, uh, for me, ethnicity plays a, a very large role. Gender plays a, a large role. Um, and degree of, of in- inflammation. And if I feel like I'm, I'm in a position to be able to, re- to really preserve CNS tissue in those people that are a little bit more um, highly active. So I get a little bit more aggressive with those people that I'm a little bit more concerned about risk. Um, up front, I, I'm a, my, my personal disclaimer is that I, I don't prescribe um, self-injected interferons or Copaxone anymore um, in my practice. I really turn to orals uh, or or infusible uh, monoclonal antibodies. And it's really, you know, then orals, we kind of pare down in terms of what's appropriate for their, for their lifestyle and, and family planning. And, um, but I'm, I, I don't hesitate at all with people that are at high risk. I really do push them towards um, monoclonal antibody. I have quite a few of those people that I actually push, push very aggressively towards natalizumab. Um, those people that I'm I, I'm very concerned about. So uh, even just to be able to kind of quiet them down and stabilize them and then switch them to an oral therapy. All right, we have time for one last question, and this is going to be a really hard one. What do you do in older patients who have steadily progressive disease? And I think by, by that means without much... Smoldering. Smoldering, the smoldering. MS without the inflammatory disease activity. What's your, what's your choice for those uh. individuals? I kind of juggle balls around and I tell them to pick, um, you know, I, everything that we use doesn't do enough. And we still have, uh, those people. What I, what I do tend to focus on though is really, really optimizing symptom management, um, improving, you know, speed, uh, nerve conduction, try to optimize bladder, bowel fatigue try to get them moving. Spasticity is really a big one that can make a great impact on improving EDSS. So I, I, I tend to focus more on that um, and have them on something, just uh, sometimes teraflunamide, um, just as kind of a, an insurance policy. Maybe it just helps me sleep better. Yeah, and I, I use uh, anti-CD20, in particular ocrelizumab in this setting, and, and of course saponamod. Uh, limited data uh, indicating some degree of efficacy for both of those products in uh, in these individuals, but you know, we only have data up to the age of 55 for ocrelizumab. So it somehow is actually referred to as you know older in clinical trials. I don't quite understand. Well, I, I was thinking of you know like a 65 year old patient. Oh, at least, right? At who's, least who's gradually worsening. So, yeah. So, so uh, there you have it. Uh, we have a big unmet need for non-relapsing progressive forms of multiple sclerosis, and hopefully, some of the work that's currently being done 
with uh, Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, or perhaps even EBV-directed uh, cellular therapies, uh, will provide us the breakthrough that we need uh, for that form of MS. So thank you all for joining us this morning, um, early morning for especially those of you who've come from the left coast and then regular, <laughs> regular hours for everyone else. Uh, pleasure working with you, Heidi. Thanks to peer review and uh, have a great rest of the meeting. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash R-E-K 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.